if you came anticipating a magnificent sermon upon the connection between circumcision and baptism, you will be disappointed. We're going to touch on that a little bit, but I decided as I was looking at the text and all the things that were going on in the text, that um, that may at some point bear its own sermon. But there was more that was going on in there as well, so I'll touch on it as I said, but it's, uh, there's a whole lot more going on than just that. So uh, it was one of those, man, this really should be two sermons. Oh well, maybe later. So bear with me in that. If I don't meet your expectations, I'm, I'm sorry. But God has good stuff here. Genesis 17, let's hear the word of our God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God, sorry, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or or bought with your, own, with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her, her name, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Then Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. 
I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve nations, sorry, twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's pray. Father, you have shed your light into the hearts of your people, that they might see and believe the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would shed light into our minds this morning, that we might understand, believe, and obey your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Sanctifier. Amen. Around the time that I went to seminary, there came a controversy that arose in the church, and it became known as the Lordship Controversy. And I think initially it was produced by a book by John MacArthur called The Gospel According to Jesus, in which he was trying to correct an error that he saw arising primarily from Dallas Theological Seminary, a controversy in which they were separating justification from sanctification to the degree that you could be perfectly justified before God and not also be sanctified by God. They were splitting two things that we as Presbyterians believe were joined together in Scripture. In essence, they were separating justifying grace and sanctifying grace. We look at them as distinct from our perspective, but they are, in fact, united. They both come to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That's sort of what's at play here in this text, is the connection between justifying grace and sanctifying grace. The big idea this morning is that God both comforts and calls us to new obedience in the gospel as we see this cutting of a new covenant. So this begins with this idea that we, we receive God's comforting gospel promises. We find that there's a gap of 13 years. The end of the previous chapter, Ishmael was born, and then it's 13 years later. We don't know what really happened between point A and point B. It could be that Abraham uh, had many encounters with God, but we don't know. It's most likely that he didn't have many encounters with God in those 13 years. In fact, the scripture may be silent precisely because God was silent for 13 years. Sometimes we have this impression that the the patriarchs, the people of great faith like Abraham, is like God showed up every third day for tea, you know. 
Um, uh, my in-laws, they have four o'clock coffee every day. And it's almost like, oh yeah, God shows up at four o'clock coffee every day. And we sit and we talk and, and he tells me great things. And that's really not what's going on in the life of Abraham. But after 13 years, the text says, God appeared. Okay, this is not like we've seen before where he had a vision. This time it's more a theophany where God shows up. He reveals himself to Abram. What does he say? He starts by telling him who he is. When he did this before, particularly in chapter 15, we saw, you know, I am your shield and your very great reward. And this time it's a little different because Abram is in a very different place than he was back then in chapter 15 when he was afraid that the four kings would come to get him. Now he's nearly dead. He's 99. And God says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty, the one who thunders, the one whose power is unlimited. He's reminding Abram of his nature because Abram needs to know who he is precisely because Abram is, as as it said in Romans, as good as dead. His wife, she's, she's about to hit 90. They're both barren. They're childless apart from Ishmael. And God is about to change all of that. And Abram needs to know that in fact he is the God Almighty. He needs comfort because he has been waiting for 13 years for this child. And so it kind of makes me wonder, you know, he needed comfort. Do we need comfort? I think we do. And I think we see from, from the scriptures that the, we, we compare the difference between Genesis 15 and Genesis, here in Genesis 17, that his, in, according to his circumstances of his need of that particular moment, God revealed himself in a slightly different way. There he was his protector, but now he is the one who has the power to keep the promises. God will reveal himself to us through the scriptures in ways that meet our particular needs at that point in time. Isn't it great that God does that? That his nature is so multifaceted that he can say, oh yes, in addition to being your shield and very great reward, guess what? You need an almighty God and that's what I am too. Witnessed that a little bit last night. We heard the the story of, of Gracia Burnham and I imagine that in many ways, the, her experience that one year being captive in the Philippines, she drew upon certain parts of God's nature and character. He sustained her in particular ways with the revelation of his nature and character in Scripture. And then when she had been freed but was experiencing the loss of her husband who had been killed in that final gun battle, she needed a different part of God. The same God, but his nature, other aspects of his attributes to come and to comfort her. And now, all of these years later, it's almost been a decade since all that happened, you see her talking a little bit more about 
recognizing the sovereignty of God, and particularly the sovereignty in His grace. Her understanding of God has grown. And so does ours as we, as we go through life and we, and we begin to understand more of who God is because He reveals more of Himself. More of what's already in here makes sense to us. Because now we need that part of Him. We need Him to be that. Something that seems relatively insignificant to us before now suddenly takes on incredible proportions to us. And for Abraham, that's what happens here. He needs an almighty God to deliver on the promises. What happens here is that God expands the promises. He goes from, I will make you a great nation in in Genesis 12 to all of a sudden, multitude of nations. Not enough. I'm going to do more, God says. And we, we see throughout this, that again, that whole idea of, I will do this. I will do that. I will do this as well. Resting upon the reality of God and His character and His attributes, including especially His limitless power to accomplish these things on Abraham's behalf. And not only that, but He changes His name. I, can no, longer, I no longer have to say Abram. I no longer need to remember to say Abram. Now I can say Abraham. I can say the whole thing. I don't have to control myself anymore. I'm so used to saying Abraham. He goes from being exalted father to being the father of many. Interesting. Let's pause pause for a moment and and think about this idea of, of a new name for Abraham. One aspect of that is that he is now, God is revealing his authority. He has the authority, the right, and the power to change Abram's name to Abraham. He is under God's authority. Secondly, often the change of a name indicated that there were going to be changing circumstances. And that's exactly what we see going on in here, is because God says, within a year, you're going to have a son. Your circumstances are about to change. Not only that, but it provides an opportunity for witness. Because now all of a sudden he goes by a different name. All of these people who knew him as Abram, now he's going to say, oh, by the way, my name is now Abraham. And they're probably going to look at him weird. Okay, imagine for a moment if I started to say, I want you to call me Martin. And you would probably go, why do you want to be called Martin? And I would say something along the line, well, you know, I really like Martin Luther, so I want to, I want to be called Martin now. You'd think I'm crazy. And so he's going to say, no, I'm not crazy. He's going to say, my God has given me a new name because he has given me these great promises and he's about to fulfill them. I tell you that in one year, I'm going to have a son. And that's when they all go, you really nuts. <laughs> Part of why God gives him this new name is also his evangelistic function within the land of Canaan. He's going to reveal the greatness of this God to these people who don't know this God. And God gives them a new name to create that opportunity. So don't you worry about creating a new name. <laughs> okay? But I was thinking about Eli. And what happens is he got a new name when he came. When he was adopted by us, he's now under our parental authority, and so we had the right to give him a new name. 
Okay? It was not just some guy somewhere deciding he should have a different name, but it was we, his parents, who decided he should have a new name. And this new name reflected his change of circumstances from orphan to son. And not only that, but they also are an opportunity for, for witness, first to him and then to the world, because at some point he's going to ask me, why did you name me Elijah? And I'm going to say to him, because I want the God of the Bible to be your God. And hopefully one day he will be able to say, I am Elijah. The God of the Bible is my God. He is the one who has saved me. New name matters. It's significant. It's important. Because especially in light of like thinking of Eli, not only was this promise for Abraham, but he throws in this, and your offspring. And that phrase is repeated throughout this text, that, that God is going to do this not just for him, but for his offspring. The promises and the covenant that he is about to cut are not just for Abram. He is not just Abraham's God, but he was intended to be the God of Abraham's children. God was not just dealing with Abraham, and he doesn't deal just with you. Many times, not every time, but we're going to see this a little bit later, this caveat here, but many times God works through families. And as Bill and I were kind of in the back room the, the other day working through this text, he was helping me out a little bit. Uh, he was reading, and I'm writing on the whiteboard and all this kind of stuff. And the language just all of a sudden reminded me, yes, Acts chapter 2. This promise is for you and for your children. What are they talking about? The people had just been crying out, how can we be saved? And what does Paul say? Uh, sorry, Peter. Not Paul. He's not Paul yet. Peter says, repent and be baptized, each one of you, for this promise is for you and for your children. The same connection, the right of entrance into the church is in both of these texts and in both places it says, it's for you and for your children. I think that's pretty significant. God does not deal just with you, but he also deals with your children. He doesn't change just Abram's name to Abraham, but he also changes Sarai's name to Sarah. Because he's about to do something for her too. Her circumstances are about to change as well. Because she is about to become a mom. At the ripe young age of 90, she's going to have a kid. Imagine that. She's got to explain that. <laughs> She's going to have to say, my God did it. But the son of promise that they have been waiting for all of these years since the initial promise when they were still up in Mesopotamia is going to be fulfilled in Sarah. It's not going to be fulfilled through adoption in Eliezer, the, the servant from Damascus, and it's not going to be fulfilled through the, the surrogate uh, wife, you know, Hagar and her son Ishmael, who is now 13 years old. Sarah. And since you laughed, his name shall be Isaac. He laughs. 
The covenant blessings will be given not just to Abraham, but to his son Isaac and to Isaac's offspring. These are great comfort uh, promises that are meant to comfort Abraham towards the end of his life. And so God offers the comforts of the gospel to meet our needs when we are in distress and discomfort. But that's not all the text is about. We also see this, that we are called to embrace God's call to a newness of life in the gospel. Okay, the first part really, you know, particularly we talked about last last couple weeks, justifying grace, but here we have sanctifying grace. The gospel calls us to the sanctifying grace. Abraham needed to be challenged, not just comforted. He needed comfort, but he also needs challenge because the last time God showed up, 13 years ago, what happened? Failure. Sarah and Abraham tried to take matters into their own hands and fulfill God's promises in their own power. We see here that this text, that justification is inevitably followed by sanctification. God says to him, walk before me. The first, the imperative, the command, the walk, reminds us it's an echo of Genesis 12 when he tells him to walk out of Ur. He changes the dynamics a little bit. He's no longer walking from Ur, but he is to walk with God. God says to him, stick by me. Walk with me. Do not walk on your own where you think you can figure everything out on your own, but walk instead with me. It's like Eli in the parking lot. Okay? Jane's a little bit older. She didn't have to do this as much. But when we're in the parking lot, Eli has to walk with one of us. We hold his hand. We guide him and direct him. And this is the idea that is there. God wants Abraham to know, I will guide you. I will direct you. Walk with me. This is what you're supposed to do. I'm supposed to guide. You're supposed to follow. Come with me. Walk before me. Or in my presence. Not only that, but he also commands him to be blameless. This idea of having integrity, of wholeness. It's not the idea of sinlessness. But integrity. Maturity. Same thing we find in the New Testament. That idea of, of, of wholeness and maturity. And so Abraham is now receiving this call. He's like, you know what? You haven't been walking blamelessly before me. There have been parts of your life, Abraham, that you have been keeping to yourself. Where you have not been heeding my instruction and my call. And guess what, Abraham? I love you, and that's got to change. That's what I just said. I love you, and it's going to change. Matt Chandler uses a phrase similar to that. He says, it's okay to be a mess but it's not okay to stay a mess. Okay? That's the idea. In justification, God says, I love you, just as you are. But in sanctification, he says, but I'm not going to leave you that way. That's what's going on here. Abraham, I love you just as you are, but I love you enough that I'm not going to leave you that way. Come with me. Be changed by me. 
walk in a newness of life. So that there's no area that is knowingly held back. You know, I've got a cartoon somewhere, and uh, since we've mentioned baptism, uh, a guy's getting baptized, and he's got his wallet above the water. And this caption says, whatever goes down belongs to God. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's sort of what we do sometimes, is, is we, we, okay, God, I'll, I'll obey you in this area of my life, but you know, in this area of my life, mm, I, I really want control of this. And it could be any number of things. Okay? For each of us, actually, it's very different. But God says, no. All of you and all of me, we're in this together. And this is why uh, Ian Duguid talks about a covenant as a relationship in which one party surrenders all their rights. Basically, a- a- God is telling Abraham, you have no rights left. <laughs> you belong to me. I'm your covenant Lord. It's time you understand this and act accordingly. You're, it's almost like a married man who's acting like he's single. It doesn't make sense. Live like you belong to me. And so all of our life is to be lived in integrity before God. And one of the first thing he does in mentioning this is he talks about the sign of the covenant. He's going to cut a covenant with Abraham. And what happens here is that Circumcision is the sign of that covenant. Slightly interesting that the word circumcise is different than cut. Okay? It's actually the word that uh, they get moil from. If you've, I don't know if you watch, if you know any Jewish people, the moil is the guy who performs the ritual circumcision. Well, the, the, that's rooted, that comes out of the Hebrew word for circumcision, the moil. But the, the circumcision is instituted as a sign of God's covenant. And there sometimes is a little bit of misunderstanding about the nature of this covenant. This week I was slipping back through some of those books I had when I was still a, a person who believed in uh, believer's baptism. And uh, one of the main guys who, de- who was defending uh, baptism from the Pado baptist people, uh, like I would soon become, uh, a guy named King, David Kingdon, who was a British Reformed Baptist or, or Calvinistic Baptist. And he kept talking about how a circumcision was a sign of, of it was a national sign. Okay? National sign, national sign. Well, when I get to Romans 4, I find it's not a, nation, a sign of nationality. It's not a sign that he belongs to this, this entity called Israel. What it really is a sign of, according, according to Paul, is the sign of righteousness by faith. That's what it's a sign of. That's what it was meant to point to according to the Apostle Paul. It had to do with faith. That it, 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 and Abraham already had that faith, as it said in, in uh, chapter 15. He believed God and it was reckoned to him or imputed to him as righteousness. And so for him, he already had it, but for his children, he, it was calling them to express that faith. Circumcision was not a new thing. We might think upon reading this text that this is a new thing that pops up, but circumcision was not new. We have evidence outside of the scriptures that it existed in some of the other cultures. But what happened is in those cultures, it was basically a rite of passage from childhood to adulthood. Wouldn't that be exciting, guys? 
there's just certain places as an adult I don't want a knife going anywhere near. You know, so the, this is the whole thought. And I, I remember when I was a teenager and Roots was on TV. And that's one of the scenes early on in Roots. And I'm just like, no way, man. <laughs> I'm running away. But that's what it was. That's, that's what often happened. And so what happens is God uses something that was within the culture around him, but yet Abraham did not practice. But he pr- puts this completely different meaning to it. Now he ties it to faith. Abraham already believes, but he's calling the rest of his household to faith. Similar for us. For those of you who have been baptized as children. And this is what I have to, I'll have to make known when the kids get older a little bit. But, you know, when we baptize Rory in a few weeks, what that really is is a call to those children or adult, adults who have not yet professed faith, do you believe God's promise? Will you put your faith in Christ for salvation? That's part of what goes on. It's not like you're baptized as an infant and you never see another baptism, right? Hopefully. But each time there is one, there's that call to faith that comes back. You have been baptized. Will you receive the fullness of the baptism as God intended by trusting in Christ? Do we believe the gospel? But not only that, but this this circumcision would be a reminder to Abraham and Sarah of their failure to trust God to fulfill his promises. He says, by faith, not flesh. Every day he's going to see that by faith, not flesh. She will see it by faith, not flesh. Shall God's promises be accomplished? As we see in the text, it is not administered just to Abraham, but it is to be administered to all of his household, to his sons, to his servants, to his slaves, everybody. It's not, okay, do you believe the promise? Okay, we'll cut you now. It was everybody. Which reminds me of the household baptisms and acts. This is basically just like that. There's an argument uh, from silence, essentially, in acts that some people will use. Well, we don't have any record that there were infants in the household. I go, yeah, you're right. And and neither do we have any record or evidence that anyone else in the household believed. Just that the head of the household believed. Similar to what we have here. The only evidence we have that anyone believed was Abraham. No one else. Then there was the interesting thing. God says something about covenant breakers. That there were, there were those who, who wouldn't be cut. The covenant wouldn't be cut for them. They were not circumcised, and he says, cut them off. In other words, excommunicate them. They were, they were to be not a part of the worshiping community. In fact, they, 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 were, they could go into the court of the Gentiles later on in Jerusalem when they get the temple built in David's day, actually Solomon's day. But they couldn't go into the, the temple. They couldn't go by the altar they couldn't go into where the priests were doing the sacrifice. They had to stand outside. They are, in a sense, cut off 
from the presence of the Holy One. They were. What else is going here? Going on here? We see also that this is a bloody sign. That's the, that's the interesting thing. The, the two signs of the Old Testament, circumcision and Passover, both involve blood. Sacraments of the New Testament, there's no blood. Why is that? The blood of the signs pointed to the blood of Christ who would be shed. Because it is Christ who is cut off for covenant breakers like ourselves, which is part of where, where Paul goes in Galatians chapter 3. So it's pointing to the reality of our redemption in Jesus Christ. It's a picture of that. They're being cut off. And so there the, the blood points forward, but now the blood has been shed. Our signs don't include blood. Because it's already been shed. Christ has done it to save his people. Now, does this mean that circumcision meant that they were saved, all these people who were, who were uh, circumcised? Absolutely not. Right here in the text, we see that. Not everyone who was circumcised was actually saved after this event. Because we see Abraham crying out for his son Ishmael. What of Ishmael? Oh, that he would walk before you. He wants his son to walk in the presence of God. He knows his son is not, and he's interceding on his son's behalf. And in this particular instance, God says, no. He is going to give Ishmael earthly blessings, common grace blessings, but he is not going to give him saving grace blessings. Abraham begins to live with the pain of knowing that his son, though he will be blessed by God, will not be with God. That his son will be alienated from God. Here is the father of the faithful and he knows the pain that some of you bear because his child runs from God. How did he bear that? By faith. That God is good. That God is holy. That God is just. God says, the covenant goes with Isaac. And so the, the gospel comforts us and it calls us to live as a new people in a new relationship with the God of all the universe. So what happened? What transpired? We see here that faith obeys with a new heart and God's power. The text goes at great lengths to remind us or declare to us 
that Abraham immediately obeyed God. That very day. That very day. That very day. Abraham was circumcised when he was 99. Ishmael when he was 13. It, it, it labors this point for uh, five, six verses. It only requires one verse. One sentence was all it would take. And yet God really wants us to understand this. Because just as unbelief is revealed by disobedience, faith is ultimately revealed by obedience. So everyone was circumcised in the household. Nothing was held back by Abraham. Let's kind of get back to that circumcision idea for a moment because that ties in with how we obey. Circumcision, according to places like Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, and Jeremiah 4.4, is meant to portray circumcision of the heart. It says, don't just be circumcised in your flesh, but be circumcised in your heart. And those texts also point to the reality that the only one who can circumcise you in the heart is God. He's not talking about you need to go have open heart surgery and have a little bit of your heart cut away. He's talking about the reality of regeneration. Circumcision points to regeneration. And it also points to the reality that a new life is at work, a powerful new life. We have Abraham here. He's already regenerate. And so it is out of this newness of life that he experiences that he obeys. He does not obey to get life, but because he already has life. We see the same thing operating in Colossians chapter 2, where it talks about circumcision, circumcision of the heart, and it talks about baptism. And, and they're saying, the people in the Colossian uh, false teachers were trying to say, if you want the abundance of the Christian life, what has to happen is you also need to be circumcised. And Paul is trying to correct this false teaching, and he says, circumcised? No. What matters is circumcision that is not done by the hands, but is done by the power of God. And guess what? That happened when you were baptized. You've been circumcised. And then he goes on to say not only that, but the idea, the reality of the power that is at work in us, because it is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. If you you read Colossians 2, he he talks about power, just like he does in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. That we have been made alive in Christ by that incredible power. And so El Shaddai dwells in all of his people who have faith in Jesus Christ. His power is not just necessary to keep his promises working externally to us, but it also works within us so that we will walk in that newness of life. It's not like, I saved you, now you're on your own. Have a nice day. But he places his spirit within us to produce this new obedience. He not only fulfills these promises, but he works in us to walk before him blamelessly. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and act, or will and work, according to his purpose. 
The reason you can be obedient is precisely because, Paul says, God is at work in you to produce that obedience. Isn't it good you don't have to live the Christian life in your own power, in your own wisdom, in your own strength? Good news, brothers and sisters. But it, but it bounces back. Do we trust God to do this? Or do we act like He won't? Or He can't? Or that we must do it on our own? Do we believe His grace is sufficient? Or that we've got to help it out a little bit? He is sufficient. He is, he is sufficient. We are responsible, but we are also utterly and completely dependent upon Him. So we find that the God who comforts us, particularly in removing the burden of guilt and justification, also calls us to live a new life in the power of His Holy Spirit within us in what we call sanctification. And this free grace keeps us from despair over our guilt and condemnation. It keeps us from lawlessness in that He calls us to a new obedience, but it also keeps us from legalism because our status does not depend upon it. So saving faith receives God's promises and obeys God's commands, which reveals that we really are trusting in Christ and not ourselves to save us. Why don't we pray? Father, we, uh, I thank you for both justifying grace and sanctifying grace. But I confess that at times we refuse to believe that your grace is sufficient in our times of need. And we look to ourselves. As the Almighty God, we ask you to work for us in your promises found in the gospel, but also to work in us to produce obedience in keeping with the gospel. And may both of these things glorify you. And may we bring you much glory by trusting in your Son in all things, that we might walk before you with integrity. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.